because there's some wonderful material there. We began uh, with the Beatitudes, very familiar passage, kind of some values of the kingdom. Last week we looked at a couple of metaphors that Jesus uses to talk about his community, what we're called to be. So you may remember what the metaphors were. Salt and light. Uh, and he also uses the metaphor of leaven in a different place, that we have a relationship with the world. Today we're going to turn to a part uh, that's actually, of all the material in the Sermon on the Mount, is maybe the most difficult for some people to kind of wrap their minds around because it just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Uh, we're going to look at a Rabbi Jesus. So, okay, get your yarmulkes out, okay? <laughs> Keep your Friday nights clear uh, because Jesus has some interesting things to say. What we're going to look at is Jesus as a Torah-observant Jew sent by the Jewish God to the Jewish people and what he's going to do is to reinterpret the Jewish law. And basically, this material is the rest of chapter uh, 5. It's, it's a mass material. We'll spend six week, uh, several weeks on it. Uh, what we're going to do today is, is the sort of the intro to that is Jesus sort of sets up this material. Do you remember what are called the antitheses? You have heard it said of old, but I say unto you. And there's about six or seven topics he does this with. This is the intro to that. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Now, would there be some Christians who would believe that he did come to abolish the law? Can you think of one? Mm, St. Paul? Yeah, it would be, you know. Uh, although Paul says that he has not come to do that, some people might attribute that to him. He's not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, at the time Jesus is alive, the, what we call the Old Testament has not been finalized. Uh, there's roughly three groups. The law would be which books? First five, the Pentateuch, which is the, the material attributed to Moses at Mount Sinai. The, the prophets is a broader category. It would include what we would call the history. First and second Kings, first and second Samuel, first and second Chronicles, uh, Judges, Joshua, material that's sometimes called the former prophets, and then the, because there's some prophet figures in that material. And then the later prophets, which include the four major ones, and then the minor, 12 minor prophets. Uh, there's also a section called the writings, but Jesus does not refer to that. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's pretty <coughs> darn categorical. Okay? Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments in the Torah and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And by the way, the, of the first century, among all the Jewish groups, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones noted for being the most meticulous about following every little detail of the law. The only exception may be the Essenes. If you don't do this, if you don't have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't have any parallels to this. This material is not in Mark and not in Luke, which is not surprising because those are gospels written primarily to Gentile audiences. So this material would not be relevant for them. John is a Jewish gospel, but does not have this material because John goes a whole different direction. And Thomas does not have any of this material. Uh, we don't have this attitude toward the law. It does appear to be authentic, and it fits really well with the historical period and what we know about Jesus, 
but Matthew is the only one that captures this material and brings it forward to us. Um, all the remainder of the chapter, chapter 5, the antitheses, is going to be unique to Matthew. So you've heard it said, don't kill. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You've heard it said, uh, don't divorce. You've heard it said, don't, you know, and on and on and on, uh, winding up with some material that, that is shared, this, the, the love commandments. So in Matthew, Jesus' affirmation of Jewish law looks pretty total. Uh, there's not a lot of booger room here. It looks absolute, and it looks unequivocal, which raises uh, some questions. There's an implied threat here. If you don't take the Jewish law, the Torah, of which there are 600 and something commandments, if you don't take that seriously and do every little cross every T, dot every I, then you may be in some trouble here. I th that comes as a shock to a lot of us, I'm sure. Um, if you even consider doing that, you will be least in the kingdom of God. So that's sort of the backdrop against which this is set. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, does this statement come as somewhat as a surprise? What is Jesus known for? Breaking the law. Okay. What is it that the scribes and the Pharisees are always griping and complaining about Jesus? He's breaking the law. So there seems to be something going on here. Uh, this, this statement seems somewhat at odds with behavior and some statements he makes. And one of the things that stands out is, again, he gets in trouble over and over again for things he says, things he does, and things his disciples do that he encourages. He gets in trouble a lot over breaking what are called Sabbath regulations. You know, he does something or his disciples do something, and the, the idea behind it is, well, it's the Sabbath, and you're not to do what on the Sabbath? Work. And you're doing something that would be interpreted as work, therefore you would be breaking one of the Ten Commandments. We've got the kosher laws about clean and unclean. Does Jesus abide by all those? Not at all. Uh, we even see this in the Gospel of Matthew itself. This is not like Matthew presents Jesus one way and the other Gospels present Jesus another way. Even in Matthew, we have this tension. Let's look at chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain. And this is, you know, snack as, snack as you go by, you know, just grab some. Now, is there a Jewish law that would permit this? Book of Ruth. You ever heard of gleaning? Okay. You harvest and you leave so that those people who are sort of passing through or maybe are, are poor, they're allowed to do that. So that it's allowed to do that. They're not stealing. That's not the issue. The issue is what day of the week is it? It's the Sabbath. Uh, and they should not do that on the Sabbath. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on Shabbat. It's not that it's unlawful. It's unlawful to do it on the Sabbath because they're working. And then the rest of this passage is Jesus depends his disciples. Not an isolated event. We could do a lot. I'm just going to share with you one more. This one's not related to the disciples. This is related to Jesus. He left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. And they ask him, it's sort of like they've sort of learned who he is. They've learned his reputation. They've learned that Jesus has a reputation of being the kind of guy who might break the Sabbath. So they're going to set this up. Is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath? You got a guy here who needs curing. Would Jesus dare? You think he would? Absolutely he would. They set it up so that they might accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. He said to them, suppose one of you had only one sheep. And the sheep fell into it on the Sabbath. What do you think you would do? What do you think they would do? 
Rescue the sheep, of course, because it has value to them, you know. Uh, how much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was restored as sound as the other. And, of course, they all go ballistic and get all worked up about that. Same gospel. We've got Jesus saying the law is sacrosanct. Every T must be crossed. Every die must, I must be dotted. And we have to take every single bit of it seriously. If you don't, you're least in the kingdom of heaven. And the same gospel, we've got him breaking on the Sabbath. So something is going on. And this is one of those places where it doesn't necessarily make sense to us, but in the context of the first century, in the context of Palestine, there's a lot going on behind the scenes here. Uh, for one thing, we don't necessarily mean by law. He does not necessarily mean by law, and the discussion does not mean by law what you and I think of by law. So we want a little bit of backstory. Uh, again, it's something that's not obvious to us, but it would be obvious to the people who were there. The key lies in the statement that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. And that begs the question, what in the world does that mean if you're going to fulfill the law? Now, Jesus is doing something that, that is, uh, you may have read about because it's uh, uh, well-known, particularly in light of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you ever heard the term halakha? Halakha is a big term. Most of the documents that were discovered at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, are not biblical texts. They are halakha texts. They're called peshers. Peshers are commentaries. Peshers are books that interpret what the law means to a new generation. Turns out the first century was the age of halakha. That's all anybody's doing in this period. The term is an interesting term. It shows up uh, in this, uh, the, the Islamic faith, the Muslim faith, as well as ours. It literally means walking, conduct, or behavior. Get the idea? This, you know, what, when we're talking about halakha, we're really talking about what is it that you and I should do. It's not, it's not a doctrinal belief kind of thing. It's a behavioral thing. What does God want? What does God want us to do? It deals with behavior that is either in keeping with or contrary to the will of God. And that kind of a question generates, of course, a lot of lively debate because everybody agrees on that totally, correct? No, not at all. Halakha deals with what's allowed, not allowed, what is permitted or not permitted. And have any of you ever uh, seen the word halal in Islam? Basically, in, in Islam, uh, halal is kind of like kosher, but it is what has been sacrificed or killed in such a way that it is permitted for an observant Muslim to eat it. So the, the same root word, they're both Semitic words. The issue behind the teaching of the law and the issue about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, but particularly chapter 5, and the material we're going to look at for the next few weeks, is this issue of halakha. Jesus is a teacher of halakha. Um, he's not primarily a teacher of doctrine. He's a teacher of what is it should God's people be doing? What kind of behavior does God want? When he speaks about fulfilling the law, he's doing it. And not only is he doing it, he's entering into a lively debate that others are not doing, that are doing. What's allowed? What's important? What is it that God wants of us? What is it that God requires of us? Now, what's being interpreted is something else called Torah or Torah. And this is where it really gets interesting because I did not know this until fairly recently, the word Torah uh, originally meant this. 
That's what Torah is. If you throw out a baseball pitch at a game, that's Torah. It means to pitch, to toss. Uh, it often tied in the Old Testament to the idea of casting lots, but what it really means is Torah is to cast the hand. And when you cast the hand, what do you wind up doing? You're pointing. You're giving direction. You're you know, looking at something. So pointing to a direction, in other words, what is God's will? Torah. That's God's will. That's what one, one wants. Secondly, it came to mean to give guidance or direction because you're pointing to something. You're pointing to what to do. And out of this came the idea of Torah as teaching or instruction. Torah does not mean within the Jewish world. We translate it often as law, and that's a mistranslation. It is not law. Um, how much of the Pentateuch is actual law? 20% or less? What is most of the Torah? Teaching. You know, it, it's stories and narratives and laws and codes and other things, but it's basically the narrative to teach you, and, and you get taught more by stories than you do by the actual legal codes in there. There's something else that's going on behind the material that would not be obvious today, and that is that if you get two Jews together, Jesus another one, and you ask them what Torah was, there's a good chance they wouldn't agree as to what is or is not Torah. And within the Jewish community, they still know this because they use the other form of Torah every day. We tend not to. Um, and that can cause some confusion. But the, this, uh, this idea that I'm about to share with you really is the key for unlocking what is Jesus doing when he says he's come to fulfill and that we shouldn't change anything? This is what he's doing. In the day of Jesus, many believed that the Torah was actually more than the Pentateuch. As a matter of fact, we're not talking about other books in the Bible. We're talking about material that is nowhere found in the Bible. Are you all aware of that? You heard of that? Okay. You know what the term for that is? Oral Torah. For the Jewish tradition, there's two kinds of Torah. There's written Torah, and there's oral Torah. There's the stuff that's in the Pentateuch, and then there's all this other stuff that's out there. So when a Jew is, is engaging Jesus in a debate, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the written law? Are we talking about all this other stuff that's out there that's floating around? Rules and regulations that were not actually written down. Um, so many people, including the people that Jesus is, seems to be in debates with and arguments with, are actually arguing not from the books of Moses. They're arguing from this other material that's traditional that kind of comes down within Judaism. And this is simply called the Oral Torah. Here's Josephus in the Antiquities, and he gives a little bit of the backstory. The Pharisees had passed on to certain people regulations handed down by previous generations but not written in the law of Moses. What he's referring to is what <coughs> other people would refer to as oral Torah. Now, some of this oral Torah even gets written down in the couple of centuries leading up to Jesus in some books, uh, what is sometimes called rewritten Torah. Have you ever heard of Enoch? Heard of Jubilees? A couple of books that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls as well as the Ethiopian Bible. Uh, basically, these books take portions of the Torah, the, the written word, and then add all kinds of other stuff to it. And so we take like two chapters of, uh, or maybe 12 chapters of a book, and we wind up with 100 chapters of material. What's all this other material? This other material is that, that oral Torah, the rewritten Torah that gets kind of gets pulled in. These are basically books of Halakha, as are the Peshers. Entire books, 
fall into this category of the written. That was one of the surprises of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found a tremendous amount of this material. It was just all over the place. Uh, these books uh, state that the these new requirements of oral Torah, okay, okay, if they're not in the books of Moses, then what gives them authority? Well, these books have a little explanation for that. It's called, uh, they're in the heaven. If they're not in Moses' books, they must be somewhere really, really special. Well, they're in heaven, on heavenly tablets. So Jubilees 3. It is prescribed on the heavenly tablets that they, the Jewish people, should cover their shame. You should never be naked. Now, this is written about the time of the Hasmonean Maccabee era. And by the way, do you know anything about Greeks and nakedness? Or Romans and nakedness? And what happens in the gymnasium? You don't wear clothes into the gymnasium, okay, at all. It was all those things were done in the nude. And should not cover them, uncover themselves as the Gentile uncover themselves. Now, what's interesting is if you go back to, to the Pentateuch, that's not there. There's nothing about that anywhere in the books of Moses. But it's now been put forward as the word of God because where is it written? The heavenly tablets. It's interesting because at the time of books of Moses, the Gentiles are not an issue, but the Gentiles are not an issue. So this new tradition has kind of come in. Eventually, the oral Torah will become the core. You ever heard of the Talmud? Okay, that body of Jewish material. The core of the Talmud is something called a Mishnah. That's the basics. And around the mission, then more rabbis talk about what the mission means, and that's called either the Babylonian Talmud or the Jerusalem Talmud. Well, what is that stuff? It's the oral Torah. You begin to write down after the temples destroyed all of this material. So in the Mishnah, we have this wonderful saying, Moses received the oral Torah from Sinai. So where did the oral Torah come from? God, Mount Sinai, and Moses. Well, why is it not written in the books of Moses? Well, we have an explanation. Moses gave it to Joshua. Joshua gave it to the elders, the elders to the prophets. The prophets delivered it to the great men of the great synagogue. <coughs> and who are the men of the great synagogue? The rabbis. The rabbis who found Judaism as a faith after the temple has been destroyed. So during the time of Jesus, we have this running debate. You know, Jesus is always interfacing with what? He, he, he argues with Who's he argue with? Give me some examples. What? He argues with Romans occasionally, rarely. Pharisees and? And Sadducees and? Scribes and? Herodians and? Yeah. Lawyers. Yeah. What's interesting is, is that this is not just Jesus. If you were wandering around, the Josephus tells this, Philo tells this, other people tell this. If you were walking around, Jews just love to argue. Okay. <laughs> First century Jews loved. So as Jesus is going around, this is not even like a bloody conflict. This is just normal day to day stuff. What do you argue? You argue religion and you argue halakha and you argue what does God want? Well, I think God wants this. Oh, no, God didn't want that. God wants this. And Jesus is right in the middle of all that. That's the background of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is in the mix giving his view of what God wants, which is somewhat at odds with some other interpretations. Again, he's in it word and he's in it deed. We even have stories where Jesus deliberately does something to get other folks worked up. He just walks in the room and says, I know how to get these guys going. <laughs> yeah. I'll just heal somebody on the Sabbath. That'll, that'll get them worked up. So Sermon on the Mount, particularly chapter 5, takes us into the heart of this ongoing debate. 
So when Jesus does this, he's not violating Torah in the sense of the five books of Moses. He's violating somebody's interpretation of what that stuff means, which is, you know, so you don't find this stuff. When Jesus gets accused of stuff, you know, somebody once said, see if you can find anywhere in Genesis through Deuteronomy that it actually says you shouldn't do that. When they say he's breaking the law, you know, it's not there because he's not breaking that law. He's breaking a different law. He's violating the interpretation to fulfill his words in the law and the prophets seen in that context. He's taking issue with contemporaries and being involved in that. Now, Jesus then gives his interpretation. He's going to give his halakha. Now, most of that's the stuff that we're going to see in the next few weeks. We'll start next week with murder, then with adultery, then divorce, and some other issues. But right now, what we're going to look at is how Jesus kind of sets this up. He sets it up in all these with this little phrase. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? Now, you've heard it said, not you've heard it written. But most people couldn't read. So one of the questions is, is this just the other halakha? Or is Jesus even sensing that he's got the ability to edit the written Torah? Jesus will say the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so there's some evidence for that. Yeah. What's most striking is not the words that Jesus said, but the authority that he gives it. For somebody to sit up there and said, you've heard it say, but I say unto you, now, what is everybody else in the first century saying? Everybody else in the first century says, well, Rabbi so-and-so said. This authority said. Jesus is the only figure we know of who actually comes over and says, I say. He, he claims that authority, which is very, very unusual. And again, the locus of the authority is not the oral Torah. It's not the fathers. It's not the men of the great synagogue. And by the way, it's not even the written Torah. What we see in chapter 5 in particular is the authority based on him and what he said. You have understood that this is the interpretation. You've understood this is the law. I'm going to tell you this is what it is. And he kind of lays that out there for him. Uh, he doesn't try to justify it by linking it anywhere else. It is simply stated. Um, throughout the chapter, we hear these statements. You have heard that it was said of people long ago. And by the way, most of these are going back to the Ten Commandments. And then he would say, but I say to you, giving his view of what that commandment is really about. For example, he would say, you've heard it uh, said you shall not kill. Are you familiar with that one? Do you remember what Jesus said? But I say to you, if? If you have anger in your heart, you've already killed them in your heart. And you've already broken the commandment at that point. And then there's the famous Jimmy Carter commandment. <laughs> yeah. About adultery, you know. It's not just the act. Jesus moves it behind the act to the motivation. Uh, this is what's going to take the remainder of chapter 5, which will take several weeks to work through. So his halakha on these topics that we'll see coming up, winding up in the crescendo at the end with the love commandment. That's where he's headed, where everything's going to be summarized. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the most important thing. And again, very stark contrast to the Pharisees, most of the others. Um, if you back up and kind of get the, you know, the 5,000 foot kind of picture, what seems to be consistent through all these topics that we're going to look at 
is that Jesus seems to be focusing not on the external act, but the internal motivation. And he does that over and over and over. He wants to talk about the root cause, the internal motivation, and in the six antitheses, we will see that over and over again. It's going to culminate in the golden rule and then the great commandment, not in details of the law or the boundary markers. One of the things that Jesus conflicted with people about a lot was all this external behavior, which is what people focused on. The Jews of Jesus' generation were particularly concerned with those behaviors that marked Jews as being distinct and different from the non-Jew. Can you think of some? What did Jews do that others do not? Circumcision? Kosher? Sabbath? Yeah. Physical separation? Remember the wall in the temple? It's interesting. Nowhere in Jesus' teaching does he ever advocate any of that. Anywhere. It's just simply missing, which is interesting because in the first century, that is what most people were totally obsessed with. And what they, they saw the laws doing. Remember the letter of Orestes, the, the, the Torah builds a fence, or Moses built a fence around us <coughs> to protect us from the evil influences of the non-Jew. And we simply don't have that in Jesus. Consistent throughout his ministry. You remember the last judgment scene in Matthew 25? The sheep and the goats, insofar as you did the least of these, insofar as you failed to do it. Not a word about any boundary marker or anything cultic or any worship form. You remember what is in that, that chapter? Feed the naked, hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick, in prison, those kinds of behaviors. The going back to love commandment again. Um, and that you get it twice. You get it with both what is done and then what is not done. <coughs> Even in the closing scene of Matthew, when the risen Lord comes back to the disciples and gives them the great commission, go therefore into all the world, you know, <coughs> baptize them, teach them, nothing cultic at all it again it's just very striking it's just simply missing not a word about sabbath kosher boundary markers ritual or any of that kind of stuff comes up this is halakha jesus is letting know his interpretation of torah his interpretation of law is not focused the way that many people were focused it's focused in an entirely different kind of thing how you treat other people <coughs> and the internal motivation inside for doing that that's how you fulfill it um he will repeatedly, in chapter 5, affirm the law. Um, there are people, you have some slides on this, but I've edited them out uh, just for time's sake. But sometimes people try to pick up this uh, juxtaposition between Jesus and Paul as though they had two different un understandings. Um, when you actually look at what Jesus said and what, Jesus and what Paul said and what they're doing, it turns out they're actually very, very close doing the same kind of thing. The point in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not that the law is done away with. E even Paul will say this. Uh, do I, am I advocating that the law should be done away with? And Paul says, by no means. You know. But Paul is reinterpreting the law, just as Jesus did. So the Christians who would say that we are, the law does not count, simply have not read Jesus enough. Rather, the law is transformed from outward observance to inward observance. Uh, even this is going to stand firmly in Jewish tradition, particularly the prophets. Um, we know that Jesus quotes Isaiah more than the other. Do you know who the prophet he quotes second most often? Uh, uh, well, Ezekiel's son, Jeremiah. And this is one of those places where he's very, very close to Jeremiah. Uh, 
Look at this and then see what, what Jesus is saying in chapter 5. See if you don't see the exact same thing. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is the language the church picks up. We have a new covenant. We have a new testament. We have a new relationship with God. Jeremiah says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law where? Within them, not on stone. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It does look like this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. He's come to proclaim this new covenant. Um, and so for the next few weeks, what we're going to get a chance to do is to, to look at this principle as Jesus applies it to topic after topic after topic. Of course, the first one will be the issue of killing uh, and what is involved in that. For the next two weeks, see you. Uh, <laughs> there's a group of us going to be in Alaska. Don't, don't feel too bad for us, okay? Uh, Susan will be here with us. And I think that she'll probably do, I to give her permission to do which two she wants, but I think she's probably going to do killing and adultery. Uh, two perennial favorites of everybody, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> Would you stand as we join together?